So hey, by, uh, by way of announcement, we are, we're in between core classes right now, and our next one actually starts this, this week, this Thursday night. So our next class is, is uh, The Life of Christ, The Mission and Message of Jesus. It's a six-week course, and uh, we're starts uh, this Thursday, like I said, we'll be meeting in this room, and goes from uh, uh, 7 to 8.30, so just an hour and a half. And uh, for those of y'all that are in like the two-hour time block, you're like lightweights, you know, hour and a half. But um, we'll cover uh, kind of the, this week anyway, we'll cover the historical background, set the stage, who are, who are all the players in the Gospels, uh, um, what, when Jesus was saying things, why was he saying that? So a lot of, a lot of historical background this week. And then um, in, the, in the subsequent weeks, we'll launch into um, Jesus' uh, birth, his, his, his claims, his works, his message, his, his life, death, and resurrection. So it'll be kind of that thematic overview of the life of Jesus. Of all the core classes we do, this is my favorite one because um, if you're Christian and you don't care about the life of Jesus, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, um, but no, if you haven't signed up for this and you would like to, we'd love to have you. Um, it's, that'll be a fun class. So, also, if you've missed uh, past weeks here, this is kind of what we've done so far and what we're going to do. So the, uh, on the 29th, we covered the just kind of intro to theology. And then, and then last month, we, co- we covered the doctrine of the word of God, kind of bibliology. And, and then tonight, we're going to cover um, what is commonly known as like theology proper or, or uh, just the doctrine of God. Who is God? So the, the way, if you've kind of looked through your slides already, the way that we're, we'll cover this is, is uh, we'll go through the attributes of God, and then we'll take a, a little bit of a break, and then we'll cover um, uh, kind of Trinitarian doctrine. How did that doctrine come to be? Why do we hold to it? Why is it important that we hold to it? And then we'll end our time with the last block on uh, providence. So um, I know this, this month's reading was the longest uh, of the Grudem assignments. So I I think there was maybe 120 pages or so to read. Um, So if you didn't read the entire section, um, the Pharisee in me wants to guilt and shame you, you know? But uh, but I totally, look, I get it. Um, uh, So I I think everybody's busy. So if you can go back, it's, it's definitely worth at least, you know, skimming that section. But for those of you who did read it, I guarantee you um, there were questions in that divine providence section, like what in the world is going on here? So we'll talk through some of that and how uh, Grudem has a view, but there's other views out there and we'll talk through those and have some good table discussion and some Q&A at the, at the end. <clears throat> A.W. Tozer said this in The Knowledge of the Holy, this, this little book. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like itty-bitty. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's, uh, I think, probably every, uh, well, I don't know. I think it's important. Uh, I think a, a serious follower of Jesus ought to be reading people like Tozer. But he says this. He said, perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God um, that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. 
before the Christian church goes into, into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. Though she may continue to cling to a sound nominal creed, her practical working creed has become false. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what he actually is, and that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. So someone might ask, well, I mean, theology proper, like doctrine of God, like really, come on, this seems kind of lofty. And I would just point you to that right there, <laughs> right? Um, and and uh, uh, so, so it's extremely important where we're, what we're gonna be covering tonight. Um, let me pray for our time and then we'll kick off. Well, Father, we, we want to know you and to believe right things about you and to rightly relate to you as you are and not as we would have you. And so I pray that tonight would be a clarifying exercise. I pray um, all of the things that um, accurately reflect you that they would stick and the things that um, don't or um, should not be said, I pray that we would just forget them. Um, use our table times and also this time from the stage um, to sharpen our minds about you, that we might know you as you are and worship you as you are, that we might love you as you are. Um, we give you this time and pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, hey guys, it's the first time, uh, well, no, you were, here, you were here the first night, just briefly, but uh, Blake Holmes is the senior equipping director here at Watermark, and he's gonna be uh, uh, kind of team teaching tonight, so y'all give it up for Blake Holmes. Yeah. Well, hey, gang, I'm excited to be here tonight, <clears throat> and um, I know there are many competing voices and demands uh, vying for your attention, right? It's a beautiful day out there. You got a Monday coming, and there's a lot going on, so I'm excited to be here tonight, and I appreciate you making an effort to be here, and hope that this is uh, worthwhile for you as we stop and really consider and ask ourselves uh, do we believe God exists? Why do we believe God exists? What is God like? Can we know him? And um, and in what ways is he involved in our everyday lives? What does it mean to say that God is providentially involved in our everyday decisions and in how we lead our lives? So uh, I think this is going to be a, a fun night. Uh, another Tozer quote that he's popular for saying and that Todd repeats often on Sundays is this. He says, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you agree or disagree with that? I'm asking. Do you agree or disagree? You don't always have to agree with Tozer now. Come on. I didn't quote Paul, right? All right, for those of you who said you agree, why do you agree with that? Because if, uh, if, if we're not um, devoted to the one who is above our faith, then what's the point? Okay. All right. Thanks, Angela. Because I like what I think about God. Because you like what you think about God? Okay. Um, why do you like that? Because 
Okay. And what do you think about when you think about God? My father that loves me. Okay. A father that loves you. Okay. Directs your actions. So when you think about God, you, you are able to, you think about how he provides guidance. Okay. When you think about God, what are the first things that come to your mind? Not a trick question. Everybody participate. Love, okay. How many of y'all would say, hey, that's the very first thing that comes to my mind. When I think about God, this is what I think about. That God is loving. Okay. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, what do you first think about? Holiness. Holiness. Okay, what does holiness mean? Moral perfection, that God is holy. He's powerful. Okay, he's sovereign. What else? That he's good. That he's good. God is loving. He's holy. He's powerful. He's good. He's he's faithful. He's just, yeah, he's compassionate. Okay, how do you know those things? Okay, so she answered because she has spent time with God. All right. I'm sorry? Okay, so reading God's word, that's what God's word testifies about him. Okay, experience confirms that. How so, Angela? Um, well, uh, you know, talking about from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, talking about God being compassionate um, after Aaron, um, you know, put the golden fire and came out with his calf. Right. Okay. That's a strong testament of faith, isn't it? All right, this is going to be like interactive. So I will sit here because I'm very patient and real secure with silence. So I'm asking you, you have the opportunity to talk to somebody about God. Okay, and we're all sitting here kind of, I don't know if it's because of theology class or we're intimidated. I'm asking you, when you think about God and you think about the characteristics of God, what comes to mind and how do you know that? Okay, mystery. I love that. Why mystery? Yes, how many of you would agree with that? Okay, you cannot put God in a box. And right when you think you figured him out, it's just like, boom, something happens. You're like, okay. God is sovereign and I am not, right? All right, so there's mystery. In some ways, he is knowable. We can know God, truly know him. Whether because we know his word or experientially, we've had an encounter with God. Okay, we can know God, but we can never fully know him. We'll talk about that later on. You know, God, a word that you could write down here, God is inscrutable. Okay, what does that mean? It means that we will spend eternity with God and 
yet we will still continue to learn about him. Like we're never going to get to the end and go, I know everything there is to know about God. Even in heaven, you're not going to get there. Because he is eternal. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, holy. And we will spend eternity in relationship with him, and there will still be more to know and worship and love and appreciate about him. Let that sink in for a little while. Okay, what else? When you, okay. So why'd you say that? He's provider. He's provider. And how do you know he's a provider? Okay. Specifically? How so? Okay. That's excellent. So what separates you, Christian, and what you believe about God from the average guy on the street? What separates you from the Muslim? What you believe about God? Sorry? Okay. How so? Okay. We believe Jesus is God. Absolutely. Okay. And so what does that say about God? Okay. Yeah, so God's loving, he's personable, he's just. Okay, so some of these characteristics, attributes of God, about God, I'm afraid when we read chap, a chapter on the attributes of God, we're kind of like, yeah, I got that. God's good. God's faithful. God's holy. Full of grace. Right? We're like, let's, let's move forward. Let's get to, like, uh, angels and Satan and demons. Let's get to that chapter. Okay, isn't that right? I mean, we want to know about that. And, and that's where we run, but I just want you to stop. When we think about this, when we think about God, you've got to recognize that you just can't take for granted, one, okay, that, and just say to somebody, well, I believe God exists just because I believe God exists. Why do you believe God exists? And then if somebody tells you, well, tell me about God. Well, I believe he's personal. Why do you believe he's personal? Well, I have a relationship with God. Well, how do you have a relationship with God? Oh, uh, Jesus. Okay, why do you have a relationship with Jesus? I want to I push you a little bit tonight to think about why you think the way you do about who God is and what difference does that make in your everyday life. Some of you have met Abner, who works on our staff um, former Muslim, incredible story, lived in Iraq until the U.S. Army came marching through, and, um, and then God did a work in Abner's life from the moment he met some men in the U.S. Army who pointed him to Jesus to where he found himself in America and then on our staff at Watermark as a follower of Jesus. And as I sat with him over coffee one time talking about the Muslim faith, he said, Holmes, what you don't understand is, is that when you're, when you're talking about God and a relationship with God to a Muslim, that is a foreign concept. There is no relationship with God. And this whole idea that God is pursuing you, wants to know you, wants you to know him, that he's full of love and grace, that is a foreign concept in the Muslim faith. Allah is just and you better fear him. 
He is one to be feared and respected. He's not personable. There is no concept in the Quran of a loving God. That does not exist. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about how right now what ISIS does in the Middle East, they believe that they are worshiping God. You know that, right? You know that because of how they think about God, they are convinced that what they are doing is honoring and righteous and glorifying to God. Now, why do they think that way? How in the world do you think so differently? Why do you think differently? How do you even know God exists? You see, we've got to stop and think about this. So let me ask you that. How do you know God exists? Grudem touches briefly on this and not all that well, candidly. How do you know that God exists? What are the evidences of God? Okay, who said that? I'm sorry. His creation. All right. Why is his creation evidence that he exists? Okay, she says, because it's beyond our capability of understanding. And biblically, where would you go to be able to make that argument? Okay, Genesis. Okay, in Romans. Okay, that's the argument that Paul makes. In Ro- at the very beginning of Romans, Paul is going to say that creation testifies to the existence of God. Okay? So when you walk outside and you see the sunset, there's a sense in within, within all of us that, hey, there's something bigger than us that is at play here. That there is a creator. You look at the design and the complexity of creation, you see order and you go, hey, that gives evidence of a creator. Now we know because we went to biology in high school that there are others who look at the same world and they go, hey, this is as as a result of time and chance, right? Time and matter and chance and boom. And so that's how they explain away creation. But within our hearts, the spirit testifies that we were made in the image of God for a relationship with him. Okay, so if I... Uh, a great illustration, if I'm walking down the beach and you see hundreds of seashells littered across the beach, what is the most readily uh, explanation as to how those shells got there? Okay, the ocean just threw them up there, right? And you can see, you see the waves, the tide throws the shells up on there and then it comes out, right? It recedes and it leaves all the shells. Now you're walking down the same beach, Right? And then you see that the shells are arranged in such a way as the shells make out the letters, Blake loves Rebecca. Now, what are you going to conclude? The waves. The waves. <laughs> okay? What are you going to conclude? That somehow, some way, the waves miraculously, because of time plus chance plus matter, boom, language intelligence. Blake loves Rebecca. No, you're going to go, hey, Blake was here. (laughs) Okay. Or you might conclude Rebecca was here. (laughs) All right. There's my wife right there, Rebecca. All right. So 
But you're going to see, you're, what happens is what's so natural and instinctual to you that you're going to go, oh, look, there's evidence of intelligence. Okay, now you, I'm not, this is going to be a science class, but you just think about what is DNA? It is the genetic code. It is the language imprinted on every cell within us that makes us distinct, which makes us us. And so if you are just going to walk down the beach and you so naturally, you just so quickly conclude, oh, look at that. Somebody must have been here. There was intelligence behind that. The complexity of the shells is nothing compared to the complexity of DNA. Creation testifies to God's existence. Paul makes another argument about the existence of God. And he says, our conscience bears witness that God exists. Our conscience. Now, how does our conscience bear witness to God's existence? That's right. We all have this inherent sense within us of right and wrong, don't we? That was... How many of y'all would say, as a child, you remember this? You took your mother's cookies when she said, don't eat the cookies, right? And you ate them. And she said, I told you to wait, okay? How many of you remember, as a young child, having that sense of, oh, man, I did the wrong thing? Yes? Everybody? Not a trick question. Okay, guess what? If you asked your grandparents, they would have the same answer. If you asked your friends who grew up in different countries, they'd have the same answer. Across all time, all places, inherent within each of us is the sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. If I walk over, right, and tease Nika and push her out of her chair or shove her down, all of you are going to go, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that to her? It's going to upset your sense of right and wrong. Yes? Where does that come from? The Bible would argue it comes from the fact that God is the moral law giver. And in the same sense that every single one of us would sit there and go, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. When you appeal to the standard of that's not right or that ought not to be, that's wrong, that's evil. What are you appealing to? The sense of justice, the standard of right and wrong. And we all know that standard of right and wrong. And so Paul is going to make the argument in Romans 1, right there in Romans 1 and 2, he's going to make the argument that God testifies that he exists through creation and through conscience. And do you know what each of us has done? We have suppressed that truth and we have exchanged that truth and bought a lie. And because of that, all men are without excuse and all are guilty before God in need of a savior. That's the argument. So a very, very basic defense for, hey, how do you know God exists is one of creation and one of conscience. But then we ask the question, well, what is God like? And the Bible makes this very clear. And Grudem, what he does when he's talking about the character of God, he divides it into two parts. He says there's the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. 
What are the incommunicable attributes of God? What does that mean? The ones that we don't share with God. An example of that would be, okay, omniscience, which means that God is all-knowing, okay? Exactly. What is a communicable attribute of God? Love. One that we share, okay, is love. Perfect. So what I want to do is, in a very, about 15 minutes, I'm going to walk you quickly through these, but what I want you to think about when I do this is not just what you assume to be true. I want you to think real quickly about what does this attribute mean and what is its opposite? I think so often in order to rightly understand and define something, if you'll think about its opposite, you'll better understand its meaning. So let me explain. The Bible teaches that God is independent. This, as Gruden defines, means that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. God is independent. What would be the opposite of that? God is dependent. Now, could you imagine how horrifying that thought would be? What would it mean if God were dependent? on us. Yeah, I mean, he would certainly would no longer be God as we know him, right? But think about what we communicate, and Grudem was right to point this out in his book. He says, you know, God is independent. He doesn't need us, but yet, yet, when we communicate to our kids or to other people, why did God create us? Because he was, what? Lonely. How many of y'all heard that? Okay, it's all right. We were taught that somewhere in some way that God was lonely and he wanted us. Okay, that's a wrong understanding of God. God did not create us because he was lonely. Nathan's gonna talk later on about he's triune. He was never lonely. He was independent, never in need of us. But he created us in his image that we'd be like him, that we could have a relationship with him. But that does not imply that he was dependent upon us. God is independent and does not need anything from us. The Bible says he is immutable, that he does not change. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Now think about this. What would it be like if God changed? Have y'all ever, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. Has your spouse ever been moody? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Have you ever been moody before? All right. Thank you. All right. You can raise your hand on yourself. Have your cha- taste changed? Have, has your uh, uh, things that you like to do changed? Places you like to go? Okay, we change, don't we? Could you imagine if God changed? 
What if God just says, you know, I changed my mind. That whole idea about Jesus coming back, eh, we're not doing that. What about if God just said, you know what, that whole idea of we're gonna, I'm gonna relate to you based on grace, on what Christ did for you on the cross, eh, change my mind. I don't wanna do that anymore. Could you imagine a world if God were dependent upon us? Could you imagine a world if God was changing? What if he was fickle? What if God was like your junior high friend who changed with emotions every other day and frustrated you? If you're raising kids in junior high, you know what I'm talking about. I'm doing that, all right? God is eternal. What's the opposite of eternal? Temporal? What if God was finite? What if God truly could experience death? God is omnipresent, meaning he um, does not have size or spatial dimensions, but he's present every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. Now stop and think about this. I'm about to go to Haiti in just a few weeks. Is God just as active and present in Haiti as he is in Dallas, Texas? Yes, he is. Is God just as active in Dallas, Texas, as he is in Iraq right now? Can you escape God's presence? What if you're all by yourself, locked in your room? Can you run from him? Can you escape his presence? Is his watchful eye ever far from you? What would happen if you could run from God to, or climb some mountain or swim in the sea or go somewhere and escape God's presence. Could you imagine? Think about the fear and insecurity in your heart at that point where somehow, some way, God's eye is not on you anymore. You see, God is omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. Do y'all know that? Satan is not omnipresent. He is not in every place, everywhere at all times. He is not. The Bible says that, that God is unity, that he is united. He's not divided into parts. Yet we do see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. Now, when you think about the unity of God, think about it like this. It's not that at one point he's more loving than he is just. He's fully loving and fully just all at the same time. God is spiritual. He is invisible. He's omniscient. I'm going through these quickly just for the sake of time. But again, think about the opposite of this. If God wasn't omniscient, if you feel like you struggle with anxiety today, think about that thought. How anxious would we be if God was somehow limited in his knowledge? But yet we take comfort. We take strength in the fact that, you know what? God knows everything about you. Every anxious thought, every worry, every concern, Every secret, every hurt, God is aware. 
We serve a God, gang, who is omnipresent in every place all the time, who's fully aware of everything about you. Jesus comes and argues and says, hey, he even counts the number of hairs on your head. He's imminently acquainted with all of your ways. And here's the cra crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing is that he's not only intimately acquainted with all of our ways, he's not only uh, present all the time, but he is, as we've talked about earlier, he is loving and he's kind and he desires a relationship with you. God is wise. He always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. This is what I told my kids today. I sat down with them. Did y'all read the Watermark News today? Not a trick question. Y'all read the Watermark News today? Okay. The Watermark News this week, like many weeks, tells the story. It goes about something like this. I grew up in church and then heartache, setback, pain, frustration. But then God intervened. I found watermark or a friend or the porch or whatever, and God grabbed my attention again. And I sat my kids down and I said, you know what, gang? I want you to hear my heart. I want you to know something. I want you to know that God's way is the best way. I cannot make you believe something about God. You have to make that choice. Your mom and I have trusted in Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior, and we love him. And he's shown himself to us. But just because we believe, that doesn't mean that all that is promised to us is afforded to you apart from you trusting in Christ. And when we tell you things, we tell you those things, what to do, what not to do, it's not motivated out of anger or trying to hold back on you. We're trying to tell you what we believe as best we can understand, God is trying to tell you. And we believe he's a loving father. And he's not trying, as Todd says often, he's not trying to rip you off. He's trying to set you free. His ways, God's way is the best way. But you've got to make that choice. Can you fool me? Absolutely. But just don't think going to church and checking the box and what you do and what you don't do, somehow that impresses God. Here's how you have a relationship with God. Let's talk about it again. You see, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It changes everything. But you better understand what the, how the Bible describes God. And not as the quote, which Nathan said earlier to begin our time, not think about him in a way in which you would like for him to be. Because that's nothing short of idolatry. God is honest or he's truthful 
He's faithful and he is good. And God is love. God is holy and without sin. Could you imagine the alternative? God is righteous and God is just. If you believe, we, we are going to teach conflict resolution in Haiti in a few weeks. Nathan, in fact, will go with me. And in preparing for that trip, even this afternoon, I was sitting there, I was thinking about the fact that if you believe that God is righteous and just, that changes the way in which you resolve conflict, fundamentally. If you believe God is loving and kind, that changes the way in which you resolve conflict. What you think about when you think about God determines everything. God is jealous. What does that mean? What does that mean that God is jealous? Okay, he's jealous for our time. Why does uh, jealousy, the thought that God is jealous, why does that bother some people? Okay, because jealousy is a sin is what somebody said. So what does this mean? Because we said that God's holy and righteous. So in what sense is God jealous? What, I'm sorry, somebody got it right. He deserves to be. How, explain that. Okay. Yeah, because God is perfection. Okay. God is um, the end of all of our desires. He is the ultimate fulfillment of our desires. He is the aim. Okay. And he is worthy of all of our worship and praise because he is perfect. And his way is the best way. And anything that hinders our ability to know him more or distracts us makes him jealous. And God is a God of wrath. How many of you were there? Good Friday service by chance. Perfect. We covered that. I'm going to close because for the sake of time, but I want to leave you with this. Um, I, want you to, I want you to, in, this would be a great exercise for you this week, is to take that Grudem book and to stop and see if you can define each attribute and then right beside it, write down what is the opposite. And then I want you to ask yourself, so what? What difference does it make? What, I mean, specifically, what difference does it make in your life? So, for instance, speaking of conflict, if, if I am in an argument with my wife, how does the fact that God is faithful inform the way in which I should respond to her? Anybody? There you go. Ephesians 5. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay? And so the fact that God is faithful, the fact that God is loving, that informs the way if I want to grow in godliness, if I want to be conformed so that I'm more like Jesus, I've got to know his attributes and think about how that impacts my everyday decisions, such as how I resolve conflict, how I spend money, how I entertain myself. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let's take a uh, literally just a two-minute stretch break, and then Nathan's going to come up and he can continue. Micah. Hey, guys. I know my mic's still on, but I think this is important. I was talking about faithfulness earlier. What is my friend wearing proudly right now, despite the fact that I think it was the worst defeat in Final Four history, but yet she's faithful. Her theology is informing her loyalty. I like it. Well done, Micah. Well done. All right, y'all, make your way back to your seat. And uh, where's Marm? Is Marm in here somewhere? Oh, there you are. Will you turn my mic down a little bit? It's just, it's, I don't know if it's loud out there as it is up here, but it just sounds loud. I'm pur- I think I'm purple. Hello, test, 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 test. Testing, testing more, testing more. So in a little bit of comedic relief, uh, uh, Blake was talking about raising uh, uh, adolescents right now, and, or junior, I think it's a junior high, and I'm raising a three-year-old, so my world's a little bit different, but just this week, uh, Nate, a uh, little bit of background, I gave, I gave a talk, uh, so I've been thinking about it. But I gave a talk a few weeks ago at this thing called the Bible and Beer Consortium on uh, uh, kind of the just war doctrine. And, and part of the just war doctrine is how to use escalation of force to determine like uh, how much force you, you should apply. And, and the same goes in like parenting principles. I know everybody parents differently, get, got it. But when we parent, um, the same is true. Like, hey, Nate, you get like a verbal warning and then, and then you get some sort of like, uh, you know, timeout or lose a toy or something like that. But if you just like continue to where it becomes like a, you know, high-handed rebellion, then you're going to get a spanking. Like, oh, I'm going to spank your bottom, you know? And so, which happens, and sometimes it happens a lot, <laughs> but uh, this recently, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but, uh, but recently uh, I was spanking his bottom and he's crying, but, he, but he's crying like, he's crying not, like you can, I can tell you, you parents know. You can tell when a kid's crying because he's in pain and when he's crying for some other reason. Well, he's crying 
for some other reason. And I'm like, what in the world? So like, and typically when I spank him, like I pick him up and rub his back and you know, hey Nate. And then I'll kind of reinforce the lesson and the fact that I love him and all that stuff. And he looks at me and I was like, what's wrong? You know, are you okay? And he's like, daddy, when you spank me, my superhero powers go away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I'm not, not even joking, like he's dead, he is dead serious. He is losing his capacity to fly. <laughs> oh man, <clears throat> God help us. <clears throat> The Trinity, <laughs> those two things. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> so, oh man, that's awesome. Um, the Trinity. So, this is a uh, um, when. Uh, the past two times that we've met, we've talked about the, the concentric circles, the theological target, like what goes in the middle. And I would say that um, this doctrine goes in the middle. This is, this is an essential uh, doctrine about uh, Christianity. You cannot, um, you, don't, you don't have to necessarily like be able to spell out an orthodox uh, explanation of the Trinity, but you can't reject the Trinity. Does that make sense? So, um, like, like uh, God willing, whenever my my children um, come come to faith in Jesus, I'm praying for that. But when Lord willing, if that does happen, then um, I'm at that moment. I'm not going to expect for them to be like, okay, in order for me to truly know that you've converted, um, you must tell me the the three primary you know distinction or the three primary terms that describe the Trinity. You know, and if he can't say it, I'm not going to be like, well, try again later. You know. So it's just that as, as you develop in your, in your understanding about God, you can't, you can't learn more about God and be like, oh, wait, no, I don't believe that Jesus is God, right? Um, or no, the Holy Spirit is not actually God. Like if you're rejecting those things, then, then that's when it's like, okay, this is problematic. So, um, but frankly, people do that. And, and which is why this is not a new issue. It's been around for a long time. But Augustine, in one of his uh, works, De Trinitate, he says this, thus let us enter together on the path of charity in search of God, of whom it is said, seek his face evermore. This is the sacred and safe compact into which I in the presence of, our Lord, of the Lord our God shall enter with those who read what I'm writing, where we are investigating the unity of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For nowhere, nowhere else is the error more dangerous, the search more laborious, and the results more rewarding. Right? So one of the reasons that we study the Trinity is because, is because we care about what God is like. Right? If um, God, our knowledge of God only comes, in fact, I mean, as, as, I was, as Blake was talking a second ago, I was thinking about this. Is, um, we, we can only know God as he reveals himself to us. Right? It's not like that there's something that God has not revealed to us that we know. Um, that's the, that's kind of that, when he was talking about the, the inscrutability of God, that in order for us to know anything about God, he has to choose to reveal himself uh, to us, which ultimately we believe that he's done. Uh, read, you know, uh, if you read in, in, in uh, Hebrews, I believe it's uh, chapter 12. Um, check me on that though, maybe thinking off the fly. So, but basically in, in Hebrews it says, God had, uh, um, no, it's Hebrews 1. 
Um, God has had revealed himself down through the ages, through the, through the uh, prophets and, and scripture, and then ultimately has revealed himself in the person and work of, of his son, Jesus, right? So he's revealed himself progressively to us, and then the apex of his revelation to us, the finality of it, the culmination of it, is the person, Jesus, which is why I get excited about the Life of Christ class, right? Because if you're gonna know about God, you need to, you need to look at Jesus. Um, so <clears throat> let's look at Grudem's definition of this, and then we'll talk through some helpful terms that help us think about the Trinity, and then we'll, we'll go through some, how did this doctrine um, uh, not come to be, but, but how has it been refined, not even refined, um, really, the, the, most accurately, the term is how has it been defended over the years? Um, so this is Grudem's definition out of his book. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay? There are three parts to that definition. And I, I want you to kind of get this. This is an easily memorable, um, these, these three terms are easily memorable, they're easy to remember, and it's very helpful to think about these three things in describing accurately the doctrine of the Trinity so that you can recognize, wait a second, that belief about the Trinity violates this, this part of the Trinity and therefore violates the whole thing. That's how um, we, we come to know that we hold to a right doctrine about this. So the first one is the word distinction. In Grudem's definition, which I think is a biblical one, um, it, it says this, God eternally exists as three persons that are distinct from one another. In other words, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Got it? So um, there is distinction in the Trinity. Um, as soon as we blur those things, which we'll see that people have tried to do down through the ages, then you're no longer holding to an orthodox definition of, Trini of uh, Trinitarianism. The second term is equality. In equality, each person is fully God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They all share the same essence, right? And, and so there's, there's equality among the Godhead that while, there, that while there are three distinct persons, each of those persons is fully God. And then lastly, unity. And there is one God, <laughs> right? So there's unity, unity among the distinct persons who all share the same essence um, that, that, that is God. Here is, if I'm, if I'm doing Starbucks napkin theology with somebody, this is exactly what I'm gonna draw right here, okay? Have y'all seen this before? Raise your hand if you've not seen this before. Nah, let's go with the positive side. Raise your hand if you've seen it. I don't wanna like, okay, so we've got a pretty good chunk of people that have. This is a great way to accurately describe those three uh, distinctive terms about the Trinity, that uh, you have distinction, you have the Father, Son, and Spirit, that's the triangle aspect of it. Um, you have uh, equality, which is kind of the inner, um, uh, you have the, the um, wait a second, yeah, yeah. So you have distinction, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. And then you have um, equality, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and then you have unity, there is what in the very center? There's one God. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So this is an accurate dis, dis, uh, descriptive uh, kind of 
yeah, a diagram. I don't know, is diagram even the right word? Um, illustration probably is probably the right word uh, to, to describe um, an orthodox definition of the Trinity. All right, so let's go through an overview of kind of what this l- has looked like. Very, very early on, like, like turn of the century kind of stuff. You have to understand that I mean, setting this up, it's not like that. It's it's not like the Christian Church just like was was birthed and it and it looks it looks like it does today. So uh, the the Christian Church grew out of um, a, a, a whole other religious belief system called Judaism, right? And and so in the very early. Uh, aspects uh, or the very early period of the church, there were various aspects of of Christianity that were attempting and sometimes very uh, passionately um, attempting to retain uh, elements of Judaism in Christianity. And so you see in the early church kind of the struggle between this. And in fact, I, I like to tell people, I'm like, hey, other than me being me having gone to Afghanistan, I say, hey, if you want to see where Jesus lived, go to Jerusalem. If you want to see how he lived, go to Afghanistan, right? Because <laughs> that's kind of the way it is. They live crazy, like five, 600 years behind everybody else. But then also tell people um, that uh, we typically struggle with the humanity of Jesus today. Like we, a lot of Christians might think of Jesus and they think of him like, oh yeah, Jesus is like, he's my, he's my friend. But I also like see Jesus as, as like this person who has a halo around his head and, and, and a lot of times is, is doing kind of the, you know, the, the Trinitarian, you know, deal with his hands. And there's this glow coming from his face. Um, and maybe he levitates around everywhere. And, and so we, we kind of, as far as his deity goes, we're like, yeah, Jesus is God for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's risen from the dead. Of course he's God. Right. And, and I think that the early church really wrestled with the exact opposite of that, that, I mean, they, they were intimately acquainted with humanity, right? He lived there among them. Like, I mean, not, I'm not trying to be crass or disrespectful or anything, but I mean, they're walking along and, and, and Jesus is like, hey guys, hang on for a second. I got to go behind this rock, you know, I need to relieve myself. Um, and he's like, hey, I'm hungry. Where are we going to sleep tonight? You know, um, uh, I mean, if, if, you know, obviously if you punched him, he, he bled. Um, if you nail him to the cross, he dies. You know, he's, he's a man. He's, and so um, when, when he, um, he, he's saying things about himself that are extraordinary, but then he's also doing things about his claims that are even crazier than that. Like, and, and then um, he's, he's risen from the dead. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I kind of had this paradigm for like a miracle worker because we've kind of seen that kind of thing before, but I've never seen this before. And so the early church is, is really wrestling with this and yet they're faced with this um, massive amounts of empirical evidence that, that clearly state one thing that Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse four, Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, All right? And so the early church is wrestling with Okay, how in the world, because, and I think this is one of the greatest apologetics for um, the, uh, the validity of, of the life of Jesus and, and the, the gospel accounts of his life, and that is the rise of Christianity out of Judaism. How in the world does a people who has been worshiping Yahweh as, as, as God the Father, all of a sudden, like out of this one people group who was least likely to make this type of mistake, how all of a sudden do these people begin to worship Yahweh the Father and Yahweh the Son? What? That's crazy, right? 
Like that, that itself demands explanation. If, if, Jesus is, if Jesus is not who he said he was, how did that happen? Um, anyway, so they're, 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 they're wrestling with this. Well, this early <clears throat> kind of uh, belief was called uh, Ebionism. It originated from, a, a, again, a Jewish Christian sect, one of these uh, kind of Christian sects that was attempting to retain its, its uh, Judaism this kind of like gospel plus kind of message, which frankly hangs around, you know. But it states that Jesus was a human only. It, uh, uh, as a revolutionary zealot, he was martyred for attempting to, to affect change in, in the corrupt first century Judaism. And, and ultimately, like in, in bold there, is, is it did denies the deity of Jesus, right? And so the church, the early church, having, frankly, I think the best evidence that we have about where the, tr- where the, where the identity, I, idea of Trinity came from was from Jesus himself. Um, you, you look multiple places through the Gospels, but the clearest in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through, not well, really 19 and 20, this, is, this passage is known as the Great Commission. Right? So, so Jesus says, all authority is, has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you, if you go to a seminary and learn Greek and then, and then advance in your Greek knowledge of Greek to like textual criticism, and then you learn about the apparatus and the various witnesses and how they agree and disagree, you'll look down in the apparatus and there are no variants there, Right? It's not like there's a witness somewhere else that, that, that says that, that Jesus did, said something else there. They all agree, right? And I would even say there, there's a document that even uh, most scholars believe predates the gospels called the Didache, right? The Didache just means like a teaching book. It's like a manual. And the Didache, in multiple places in the Didache, uh, instructs the early Christian church to baptize people into the name of the, of the triune God. Right? And so we have very, very early witnesses um, within a generation of the life of Jesus that are testifying to this um, kind of uh, the triune life that, 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 that the, the name of, and, and it, it doesn't, so it doesn't say the names of, it says the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Even there, you see, you see the, the distinction between the persons, um, the equality of them, the unity of them, the name of, um, that, that they are all um, God. And so I, I think we have really solid evidence. And so what you see is the early church is attempting as these various heresies begin to rise up, you see the church be, um, having to clarify what they're teaching because it's being attacked, right? And, and most of the time, that's how we most accurately learn doctrine. Your doctrine gets clarified in your own mind when people begin to attack it, right? So if someone comes and is like, well, nope, right here, then you're like, nope, here's, I haven't ever had to say this before, but now I do because you're attacking me here. This is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it is. Um, What in the world? It's what? Oh. It's like, excuse me? (laughs) Ah, That's awesome. Uh, It's tight. Nate. Nate's like, what was that, Daddy? Um, Anyway. So... 
Another one of these ideas, and probably the earliest Christian heresy that we know, that we know about, but probably the earliest Christian heresy is, is this heresy called Gnosticism. The reason we know about it is because um, a guy named Irenaeus, uh, who was an early Christian apologist, wrote a ton of things against these people. In fact, one of his tomes is called um, Against Heresies. And he writes uh, primarily against the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, they held to that the material world is bad, the spiritual realm is good. Therefore, um, these docetists held uh, the belief that Jesus only appeared um, from the Greek word dikeo, which is where you get docetism, to seem or imagine, like he, we imagined him to be human, but he in fact was just a spirit. And so coming out of Gnosticism, they're gonna deny the material aspect of Jesus, but fully embrace the spirit. And so they, de- they denied the humanity of Jesus. And so again, the early church is, is, is meeting this with, this, uh, with their, their Trinitarian formula to, to support, no, um, this is what has been revealed to us, not this thing that you're making up. Thirdly, um, adoptionism. And there's the, these are two, uh, so this is a Monarchian uh, view. Monarchian is, is uh, really a second and third century movement by these people, um, it's, it's the combination of two words, mono and then um, arche. It, it comes from like uh, where it says the one source. They believe that their one source was the, was the true be- uh, belief about God. And so they, they obviously propagated their view. And their view basically asserted that Jesus was adopted by the father at his baptism because of his piety. He was considered worthy to become the son of God. So it rejects the equality of God. Right? So the father adopts, Jesus says, hey, here's a, here's a first century Jew who's, who's worthy enough of my adoption for me to raise him to this other level. And yet um, he is not eternally uh, coexistent with the father from, from eternity past. And so um, obviously the Christian church rejected this as well. Um, another Monarchian view is called modalism. This is one of the things that probably is the most popular um, that, that a, lot, a lot of times people will hold to even today. Um, a lot of times, like, uh, like uh, some of the metaphors we use, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, but some of the metaphors we use a, lo- a lot of times will propagate uh, modalism. So the whole water, water being um, ice and then actual liquid and then vapor, like that, that's just modalism, right? So... Um, yeah, don't, don't use that. Um, but basically, uh, claims that, that God is one, and so it, so it affirms the unity of God, but that unity of God, um, that, that one person operates in three different modes. So the Father acts as the Son, and then when he's done acting as the Son, he acts as the Spirit. So it rejects the distinction of the Godhead. Um, again, all of these things have been rejected as Trinitarian heresies. Fifthly, Sabellianism. This was an offshoot of modalism, but basically they held um, that God, the Father, became the Son in the New Testament, and then he became the Spirit in the church. It's just a restatement or or a a, a more specific statement of modalism. Again, it rejects the distinction of the Godhead. And then then probably the most uh, um, famous in church history was this guy named Arius. He was uh, a presbyter in Alexandria in, in northern Egypt. And he believed that the son was created by the father and did not share the same divine substance as the father. Um, so 
while, while, while Jesus existed prior to creation, he was also created by, he was, he was really the first of, of the Father's creation, and, and, then, um, and then God creates through him. So Jesus did not eternally coexist with the Father from eternity past. And so it rejected the equality of God. Jesus, is not on the, Jesus does not share the same essence as the Father. And in response to this, now you got to remember as well, this is really the first time, because all these other ones, the church is suppressed at this time. And so while they're operating, they're not operating like out in the open in a really organized way because there's massive persecution. Like people are dying left and right. And so, uh, but Arianism um, was really the first time that the church, the, uh, the uh, Roman emperor at the time had lifted the persecution and had made it um, basically said, hey, it's, it's now illegal to like kill Christians. Um, and so, um, the, so the church was kind of able to come out of the woodworks and then they were able to come together formally for the first time and begin to say things in creeds that had been um, preserved all along. So there's two different words that a lot of times people use around this that I want to clarify. One of them is called determining, right? The, the early church did not determine what they believed, right? But they did when they came together, they discovered what they had believed all along. Do you understand the distinction there? One of them is saying, okay, now we're going to, uh, I mean, basically, all right, we've, we all agree on these things, but we need to fill in the gaps. And one of the gaps we need to fill in is the fact that Jesus is God. So we're going to make him God, right? That's not what happened. They did not determine that Jesus was God. However, when they did come together in an organized way, they did come together and be like, man, we've been believing this and dying for this for three centuries, right? And so now we're discovering that, that all across the board, these are the essentials that we have been um, fighting and dying for. Not fighting in like the crusade kind of way, but, uh, you know, uh, fighting against heresies and, and other such things that, that were coming against these doctrines. And so they're, they're saying, hey, no, we're, we're, we are... Um, um, we want to respond to these things. And so they did, right? The response to Arianism was the Council of Nicaea. Um, it's a council of Christian bishops, presbyters, elders, all these guys. They met um, in AD 325, and, and they specifically, they talked about other things, but primarily they were addressing this problem of Arianism. Because Arius was an influential bishop or presbyter in the church in Alexandria, and so they were like, hey, this is, this is not just some Gnostic offshoot. This is an actual person within the church who is teaching things that are not Christian. And so they came together to address, to address Arius. And ultimately they said, you know, hey, this is, um, you are teaching something that has not been held for 325 year, 300 years. Um, and we are going to uphold what has been uh, given, passed down to us from the apostles from the fathers, from the, from the apologists. Um, and that is that Jesus has the same essence. Um, hypostasis is that Greek word, the one essence with the father. The father is fully God and so is the son, right? And then just for kicks, they threw in the Holy Spirit. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it seems like that in the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed is, talks almost solely about Jesus. And then the very last line of it says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but the reason the Nicene Creed is like that is because nobody was questioning the divinity of the Holy Spirit at the, at the time. They were addressing a very specific problem. Well, here's the Nicene Creed. In fact, if y'all want to read this with me, 
people have been doing this for a long time. You know, we're Christian, so let's participate in the liturgy, right? Y'all read along with me. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered, and the third day he rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> That's cool. There's something cool about um, that, that, co- that connects us as, as, a, as a body of, of Christ to our brothers and sisters 1,700 years ago, right? Um, it's cool. But the heresies didn't stop there, right? Um, although they did become more focused in what they were claiming. And the, uh, in, instead, of, um, uh, instead of focusing on whether Jesus was divine or not, they began to ask about how exactly is he divine? And then um, it became a clarifying work at that point because other heresies were, were popping up. This is from Apollinarius, a fourth century bishop of Laodicea. Um, he declared that in Jesus's incarnation, he took on a human body and soul, but not a human mind or spirit, right? So he was, he was flesh human. Um, the, the various aspects of him were human, but his mind um, and his spirit were, uh, were not human. They were, they were divine, and so um, it, it denied the unity of the two natures of Jesus being fully God and fully man, which is called, you've heard me say it in here before, the hypostatic union, right? Um, they denied the, the, um, the unity of his two natures. Again, um, Nestorianism, although Jesus was one person, his two natures existed side by side and they hence were separable so that Jesus the human could die on the cross, but not Jesus the God. So Jesus, the human died on the cross, but Jesus, the God did not die on the cross, right? They, they made this distinction. Again, re, re, was rejected by the church, denied the unity of Jesus's two natures. Eutychianism, um, uh, Eutyches uh, interpreted the church's confession that Jesus was one person with the idea that our, our Lord possessed only one nature. As a result, he conceived Jesus as one in whom divinity and humanity mingled to form a, a new body, but that, but that there were still, um, uh, that the, the unity of that um, was kind of this, uh, this God and man kind of thing. So it denied the distinction of Jesus's two natures. It's almost like his humanity and his divinity almost like became the same thing, right? Um, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? So if you're picturing two circles of humanity and, and deity, it's like those two things blend into one and it becomes this new, new thing. So it denies the distinction that Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. Well, in response to these things, about 150 years later-ish, um, 120 years later, 
another council gets together and they're like, all right, guys, there's a lot of confusion going on. We got to get together again and, and uh, clarify what has been passed down to us. So the Council of Chalcedon met, and these bishops in, in AD 451 emphasized the oneness of Christ's person um, and the distinction of his two full natures, divine and human, in unity with one another. So, so that we would say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and the, probably the most accurate descriptor of him is that he is the full God-man. When we talk about, um, any, any, first of all, any questions before we move on? I know this is kind of a lot I'm throwing at you. Anybody? Anybody have any thoughts or anybody have a heresy of their own they want to propagate? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah, in the back. In the, in the dark. <laughs> Sorry. Are these things that are still held to today by different bodies or is this purely No, no, it definitely stuff hold. Yeah, yeah. No, we, people retain this stuff, man. I mean, you're not going to see like a, you're not going to see like a, a Eutychian church, you know, or maybe you will, I don't know. I've never heard of one, but, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if one popped up somewhere, you know, there's one thing I've, I, I've lost faith in and that's our, our, our capacity not to be heretical. So um, we, we will create heresy out of whatever. And, and uh, I would say this, I would say probably the one that, the one that like you, you just shoot it and it won't die um, is, is probably Gnosticism. And the reason I say that is I believe um, that in the evangelical church today and probably even in our church in some circles that people hold to, to various forms of Gnosticism and they don't even know it. So here, here's what I mean by that. Like one of, the primary, um, uh, one of the primary deals with Gnosticism is that the material world is, is bad and that the, the spirit world is good. So one of the ways you, that this shows up probably most commonly in the evangelical church today is this idea of, this, of, of heaven as like this ethereal sky palace place where there's only spirits and our spirits like, you know, fly around with cupid wings and shoot, shoot you know, love arrows at each other and it's this really happy place. And, and somehow, even in this ethereal spirit sky palace, there's still somehow streets of gold, right? <laughs> but they're transparent and so you can't really see him, but you're walking on them, but you have no idea why. And there's pearly gates there. And somehow yeah, I've got to get through these pearly gates that are sitting on clouds. I mean, this is kind of the popular level idea of like what heaven is for a lot of people. You know, you die and go to that place. Um, and, and then you also hear stuff where people are like, man, you know, I've, I just, man, this body's decaying or I don't like my body. And so I can't wait to get rid of my body and go to the sky palace where I can fly and shoot Cupid arrows. Right. Um, that's Gnostic. That's what Gnosticism is, right? I mean, it, it's a little more complicated than that, but, um, but a lot of times in, in, uh, in fact, a guy named Daryl Miller calls this evangelical Gnosticism, right? We, um, uh, we kind of entrenched ourselves um, uh, in, in, this, in this kind of trench where we're like, no, we're gonna say, um, we're only gonna care about the person's spirit, right? We're only gonna care about the pers- that person's spiritual eternity, right? You've heard terms like this. And, and frankly, a lot of times we share the gospel. This is the, lang- the kind of language that we use, right? Um, uh, unless we're clarifying our language, we'll tell people, or how, how sure are you that you're gonna go to heaven when you die? Well, we might know what we're talking about when we use that term, but a lot of times people are hearing us say, 
How do you know that when you die, you're going to leave your horrible body here and go to the sky palace where your spirit's going to dwell with God forever, right? And so, again, I'm like, come on, let's kill Gnosticism, you know, because the biblical account is your body is a good thing, right? And that, and that heaven is not some ethereal sky palace. It's material, concrete, real, right? It's, 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 it's this that we're experiencing right now, but just not broken, right? Without sin, where God's the king, right? That's heaven. Um, yep. I'm going to add one thing. Yeah. So uh, I would say... You got your mic? Yeah. Because they're back on recording it. Yeah. There you go. I, I would say that all of those exist today. Yep. We just don't define them with those terms. So um, modalism. So I teach the Old Testament a lot. <laughs> and, um, and often what you will hear today is why is the God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New mm -hmm. Testament? Mm -hmm. That is... Not true. <laughs> That's just blatant heresy. God is not the God of the Old Testament who then turned into the good God of the New Testament who's now a spirit. Okay, that's, that's called modalism, that he changes over time. And that's a very common heresy. So, hey, Nathan said something, and I want to make sure that you understand the, the why, the significance of this. But when we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, why does that matter? I mean, in some degree, who cares about these Trinitarian uh, heresies? Why does it matter that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Because God is just and required a, a sacrifice for our sins. Okay, and so I, I agree. So Terry, just flesh it out a little bit more. How does that connect to fully God, fully man? Um, if he was fully God, he wouldn't experience death. Help, connect me with the justice, though. He had to be perfect. Because the okay, why did he have to be perfect? Who said that? Okay. I think we're getting closer. Somebody said something over here. Okay. Did y'all hear that? Okay. Um, say it a little louder, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, that uh, because we needed a perfect sacrifice. Okay. So I want you to think about this, because this is gang, This is the cross of Christ, and it's so important we understand this. This is this is Second Corinthians five. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when we talk about substitutionary atonement, which we'll get to, but when we talk about that, Christ had to become our substitute. Why? What's that? He, he had to be fully man so as to be our substitute, right? So how many of y'all have drawn the bridge illustration for someone at some point in your life? You know what I'm talking about when I say the bridge illustration? Yes, okay? So what we're doing is, is we're showing in that bridge illustration the significance of fully God, fully man. He was fully God so as to be without sin. He was fully man so as he could serve as our perfect substitute. So as the God-man, he is the bridge between a perfect, holy, righteous God and a sinful rebellious people. This is why 
1 Timothy, uh, John 14, Acts 4, all claim that Jesus is the only means of salvation. Okay? So when we're talking about this, it's not just so that you can get the Bible trivia questions correct. Okay? Unity, equality, and distinction. You should all remember those three. Okay? But so that you can wrap your mind around and fully understand what happened at the cross. Okay? It matters that Jesus was fully God, fully man, because, and it matters that he's the only means of salvation. Our ideas have consequences. Mm. And that is a crazy, politically incorrect claim to make today, that he's fully God and fully man, therefore the only means of salvation. And people are like, well, why do you say that? Well, it's not that I said it. It's that that is what God has revealed because that is the only means by which we could be reconciled to a perfect, holy, righteous God. Someone had to take our place, pay our penalty because God is just. And that's what happened on the cross. All right? So. Sweet. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> you want a break? Because we got Providence coming. Um, yeah, give me three more minutes. Okay. We'll break at 8.30. So I, I do want to talk about kind of similes and metaphors because um, a lot of times people are like, well, should we use metaphors when we talk about the Trinity? Um, and, and frankly, I would say um, all language, all language is metaphorical. Uh, um, it, it has to be. So uh, again, this is the crazy thing about the incarnation is, is that anytime we're talking about God, we're using terms about him um, that, we're, that we're ascribing to ideas that we can uh, mentally uh, comprehend, but God is incomprehensible. And so even in our language about him, there are gaps um, in, in what we can know because all language is metaphorical. So understand when you're talking about the Trinity that, there are, that we're constrained by our own capacity to communicate not only with ourselves and our own brains, but also with one another through language. Um, secondly, I would say that, that uh, metaphors and similes can, can be, they can be helpful, but they're inherently dangerous because all of them break down at some point. And so if you do use one um, in regard to the Trinity, then just make sure that when you're communicating that, it's like, hey, at some point this metaphor breaks down because, God, we can't fully understand all of this. Um, one of my favorite ones is, is fire and heat and light, right? Um, yeah, okay. Like you have the actual fire and then, and then um, out of the fire comes heat and then out of the fire and the heat comes light. Um, that, and, and that's a lot, of, a lot of the way that the church has talked about the Trinity is that the Son proceeds out of the Father and the Spirit proceeds out of the Father and the Son, although the East and West Church argued about that for a really long time. But, um, but we would ultimately say, um, and, and that, that procession, that the fact that the Son proceeds from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son, there's never been a time in eternity that that procession has not been taking place, Right? Um, so some of them are helpful, but they're all inherently dangerous. And then I would also say, always start with what's clear and then move from there. So if I was doing, if I was talking about the Trinity and defending Trinitarian, Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine, I would use that diagram that I showed you earlier. I, I would draw it on a little napkin for somebody at Starbucks and be like, here is a great way to think about it. All right. So to review, what's the first word? Distinction, right? So God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the distinction. What's the next one? Yeah, equality. 
So each person is fully God. And then the last one is unity. unity, And there is one God. Okay, so let's say this definition together. Okay, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God and there is one God. Congratulations, you are Trinitarian. All right, y'all take about a... Let's, can, I, can we have to do yeah, one yeah, thing yeah, real quick? Yeah. <clears throat> all right, all of you out there who are teaching kids on Sunday, all right, when you speak on the Trinity, why is water, ice, and steam not a good way to speak about the Trinity? What's that? Three different forms, not all at the same time. Don't use that. <laughs> Don't use that. Okay? Don't be a modalist. Don't be a modalist. <laughs> Very good. Now we can break. All right. All thank right. you. Y'all take five minutes, so we'll start back up at 835. All right. We've got about 25 minutes. And we got 25 minutes to tackle sovereignty, human freedom, and evil. <laughs> That's tight. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to call this, and this is what uh, Grudem called, I think it was chapter eight, um, called Providence. And so, look, probably, like I said before, there's probably a lot of you who had a, uh, who had a number of questions about this chapter because he's dealing with aspects of, frankly, our reality um, that are extremely difficult to understand. So you had Grudem's view, um, which I think is, as we look at the four majority views here, you can kind of see like, hey, this is probably where Grudem would fall um, in, in those categories. But, but we're gonna, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna push out four major views that are held um, among evangelicals today. And then I'll do that hopefully in about 10 minutes. And then for the, for the last 15 minutes or so, Nika and Blake are going to come up here and we're just going to field some Q&A. So as I'm talking, be writing your question down or whatever, because I'm going to go fast, fire hydrant mode. Um, and then at the end of this time, you know, you guys uh, be, be ready to ask your questions about this. We'll have a great discussion. It'll be fun. Here's the four majority views. And I took this uh, directly from Randy Alcorn's book called Hand in Hand. I would recommend that for anybody who's exploring this subject. It's a great introductory book um, to kind of understand what, what the uh, different views are, are on this. So the first one is called hard determinism um, or kind of in lay terms, this is called hyper-Calvinism. Um, <clears throat> here's what they hold to. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the second one is compatibilism. That's standard historic Calvinism. Um, the, the third is libertarianism or Arminianism because it was uh, held to by Jacob Arminius. And then lastly is, is Molinism. Um, a guy named Molina um, propagated this view. So hard determinism, here's what they believe on the sovereignty of God. Hard determinism says God makes everything happen, good or evil, um, exactly as he has decided to bring about his perfect plan with all his creatures, always doing exactly what he determines, right? So good, evil, any action you ever take, it has been determined, foreordained by God. And kind of the, of the idea is like, you can't do anything but this. So you, you are a determined creature. As far as evil goes, no matter how, mu how evil or how much suffering is involved, God is the ultimate parenthetically, though not usually the immediate. Um, so God is the ultimate cause of all evil and suffering, every detail of which is his will, right? So everything that's happening in the earth, both good and bad, 
is the will of God. He has predetermined that it would be like this. Then uh, as far as human freedom goes, human choices, good and evil, are predetermined by God through the person's internal makeup and external circumstances. Every choice is what God wills and decrees. People are not free to choose in any meaningful sense. So again, um, God is saying, I will create Nathan like this. I'll give him this kind of internal physiological makeup that will push him to act in these ways because I've determined that he would act in those ways. And also to, you know, to ensure that he acts in those ways, I'm going to create people around him that will also, in external senses, um, be a factor that, choo- that, that goes into his decision-making so that he does exactly what I have, have willed for him to do. This is the position called hard determinism or hyper-Calvinism. The second one is called compatibilism or historic Calvinism. As far as the sovereignty of God, God works out his will and accomplishes his plan, doing good and permitting evil for which he has ultimate purposes. He grants people the ability to exercise meaningful choices for which they are fully responsible. So, so you're responsible for your meaningful choice and God has, um, uh, God has uh, foreordained good and also has foreordained the permissibility of evil so that he could use evil that will ultimately ac- accomplish his purposes in the end, right? That's sovereignty. As far as evil goes, he accomplishes his decreed will while permitting violations of his moral will. Again, um, we didn't quite get there on the attributes of God, but the various wills of God that Gurdon spelled out, um, his, his decreed will, his permissive will, his moral will. Um, so God is not the source of evil, but can and does use evil to accomplish his ultimate purposes, plan, etc. As far as human freedom goes, people make choices according to their nature and desires. Um, We are fully responsible and accountable for our choices. Our choices are part of God's decorative will. Um, So in other words, God has decreed that we would choose certain things, um, but but, but our choice is still meaningful. It's still our choice, even though it's a part of God's decorative will, which is one of the mysteries of historic Calvinism. The third category, libertarianism. In libertarianism, um, as far as sovereignty goes, um, all God chooses to do happens. So if God chooses that it happens, it happens. Everything angels and humans choose, God permits. So we have a a, a much broader uh, definition of meaningful choice, Um, something flirting with the idea of free will, um, including much that God doesn't desire. He may or may not use um, for good, all evils that his children experience. So there's typically, if a Calvinist is looking at this position, they're saying, hey, you're diminishing the sovereignty of God because um, he seems to be at the whim of your choices, right? But from an Armenian standpoint, they're going, hey, in order for me to love God, then I truly need to be free to make a meaningful choice to love God. Therefore, God has restrained himself and has restricted um, himself in such a way that allows that meaningful choice to actually be possible, right? That's how they're at war with one another. As far as evil goes, evil is a result of humans and demons choosing to rebel against God, but in the end, God's plan will be victorious. Human freedom, while some choices are determined and all choices are limited, um, uh, choices are free only when the church person chooses an action they could have chosen not to do. Um, so there's, uh, you have freedom to, to do or not to do um, what, 
God has built a fence and said, hey, you have a lot of, of freedom within this to, to act, but some of the, the choices are determined, frankly, the choice to build a fence, right? The real, uh, there is real contrary choice. Some choices God wills, others are against his will. And then lastly, Molinism from Molina. Uh, sovereignty is, is, is God knows what humans will freely choose and also what they would have chosen under different circumstances. God has created the world that would most glorify himself. So in other words, God knows, God knows this world and he also knows all possible counterfactual worlds that, that could exist, right? So he knows all infinite possible, possible worlds. And in all infinite possible worlds, God says, this world is the one that would bring me the most glory. And also Molina would say, also results in the maximum amount of people who would come to know me of their own free will. And, in, and, and because that is the best possible world, that's the world I create, right? That's Molinism. Evil is caused by humans and demons working against God's will, but through setting, setting in place certain circumstances, God is ultimately victorious. And then lastly, in human freedom, um, people choose freely, but God has arranged the world knowing what they will choose. So you have free choice, but God um, has, in his foreknowledge, knows what choice um, you would uh, make in all possible worlds and has set the, uh, set the stage, so to speak, knowing that uh, the choices that would play themselves out, that this is the best world for the most possible good to come out of it. For libertarians... Um, and again, because you can be, you can be a, an Armenian and be a Molinist, you can also be a Calvinist and be a Molinist. So it's, these things are not, they're not hard categories, although hard determinism is a hard category. But for libertarians, um, God foreknows the future without ordaining it. Okay, so it's, we would say God has not ordained that things would happen, but he knows the future anyway. From compatibilist or historic Calvinist, God ordains the future by the way that he arranges it. Okay, here's what I would say lastly, and then I'll invite Blake and Nika up onto the stage, is, um, man, we make huge mistakes. Um, we make huge exegetical mistakes by doing this, and I would call this the philosophical mistake. When two passages seem to be paradoxical, the tendency is to attempt to alleviate the tension by drawing a philosophical and not an exegetical conclusion that emphasizes one point in a passage over, uh, uh, over the paradoxical point in another passage, right? And, and ultimately what we're doing, uh, what I would say that, that, that the uh, interpreter is doing at that moment is you are um, interpreting the text by a philosophical category instead of by doing the hard work of an, of an exegete, right? You're placing philosophy over and above biblical exegesis. Do not do that, okay? Now, what the result of that is, is a lot of tension. And I would say, learn to live in the tension, right? Be faithful to the text. I mean, not to, not to throw a, one out there and be like, let's talk about this one, right? God knows everything, but God changes his mind, right? So one person is gonna be like, well, God can't, he could not have changed his mind because he knows everything, and the other person is going to say, hey, God changed his mind, so our understanding about what exactly God knows, we need to talk about, right? So that's just one example where, because the, guess what, guys? The texts say both things, right? 
And so that's where, for me, I'm like, hey, we need to learn to live in the tension, all right? So let's not make the philosophical mistake because both sides could make the same mistake, all right? We need to learn to live in the tension. All right, question Q&A. Micah, Blake, here we go. Anybody? <laughs> Come on, people, let's talk about sovereignty. Yeah. Not in the center. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, would, I would put it maybe, so you start talking about those concentric circles and you start talking about would I break fellowship with somebody over this. Um, I would probably break fellowship with somebody who's a hard determinist because it'd be very difficult for us to have meaningful conversation <laughs> since they feel like it was already ordained by God for us to even have that conversation and they knew, you know, da, da, da. and so I, I think that's one. I, Nate and I actually land on slightly different areas on that, so... I think there's some ways that you could go. This is just outside of it, but maybe if you're in one of the really hard camps, I might be like, I don't know if we can preach the same text. So, Nika, one more time, say what break fellowship means. Yeah, so break fellowship, I, I really think in terms of, and this is why God gave us freedoms in lots of churches. So there are plenty of churches around Dallas that we may... Uh, disagree in some philosophical ways, but we would say we're going to see you at the at the at the banquet at the feast in heaven together. But I don't think that what you're teaching is necessarily what I would subscribe to in my worship. So I, I'm not going to put myself under your authority, under your leadership. I'm not going to worship with you because we see things differently enough outside of those concentric circles that this is not where I would choose to call my place of worship. Yep. And I I just don't think I could worship. I know I couldn't worship under a hard determinist pastor. Because I'd be like, are we not going to evangelize? No, we're good? Okay. I knew you were going to say that because God told me, because he knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Does that help answer your question? Okay, cool. Ryan, what's up? Yeah, I think the telltale sign is if, you, is if you see a church reject a clear Christian doctrine. Now, I think, you know, Blake will be the first one to tell you, there's plenty of churches out there who have bad theology. And now they don't know they have bad theology. I mean, for as far as they know, they're teaching something that's right, you know. But I think when, when confronted with, you know, with like, hey, actually, no, this is the heresy and here's why. And the church is like, no, we actually believe that the father became the son who became, who became the spirit. And, you know, then, then we, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable enough to be like, hey, you're not a Christian at all. Um, but I definitely would not, like, I would, I would actively push people away from that because it's heretical. Blake, you, yeah, I, I would just say it's just the same with an individual. I mean, you may have a, there may be somebody who sincerely has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, um, but they just have bad theology. Maybe they're immature in their faith. They have not been told otherwise, but they've sincerely trusted in Christ. Um, and so I don't know if that answers your, your question. There are others who, um, they know the issues and they have knowingly rejected what Christendom is taught yeah. uh, for a long time. And so there's, that's where the rub is. I mean, that, candidly, I mean, I struggle with some of the guys you see on TV because I just sit there and I go, 
Now, is that guy, does he like, is he just ignorant? I mean, like never, no one's ever really just, poor guy, no, I mean, no one's ever discipled him, taught him. I mean, I, I have four years at the, I think the best seminary in the world, getting my master's degree. So I've been very blessed. I mean, did this guy just, he grew up, trusted Christ, you know, he's just kind of learned some things from his granddad and just kind of taught what he knew and he just doesn't even know he's teaching heresy. Or does this guy really understand the different views and he rejects um, orthodoxy and is teaching something knowingly? I don't know. Yeah. Some, of, some of those guys I just don't know. So, and it's the same thing with individuals as well, you know, that we meet. So does that help? I mean, that's why I'm always careful when somebody's like, well, what do they believe? Name the church. Like, well, I can tell you what their doctrinal statement says. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's people who go to Watermark who I wouldn't say represent what our church believes. So you just got to be careful. Yep. Yep, go ahead. So that is, you want me to jump on this? Go ahead. So that's the cross of Christ. That's the Joseph story. That God allows Joseph to be betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit. And at the end, as you know, right, and falsely accused once he gets to Egypt, you see all the ups and downs. At the end, what, is, what does Joseph say? He says, hey, what you meant for evil, right? And so God meant for good. He, he's bringing, he sees God's providential hand involved in it. I think that's all he's trying to express there, that God can, uh, even in the crucifixion of Christ, bring about um, and accomplish his purposes. So again, from depending on which lens you're viewing that passage or that, that sentence through that passage, it's not in the Bible, right? But, but, that, but that sentence, Grudem's sentence through you're going to see it in a bunch of different ways. And that's why I, I didn't want to show up here tonight and be like, hey, this is the view, right? I want to give you guys four views that are commonly held among evangelicals and frankly be like, hey, you guys need to wrestle with this and choose. What do you believe and why, right? I mean, the hard determinist is going to look at that and be like, well, yeah, God foreordained it. He determined it. You could not have done anything but this. He, he willed that evil should exist in that specific circumstance. The Calvinist would say, you know, no, God permitted that evil and then used it for his purposes. The Arminian would say, God, didn't, God did not ordain that evil, but that free humanly creature made a meaningful choice that created that evil and then God used it. And then the Molinist would say, God knew that that would happen, but he didn't ordain it. He just knew that out of all best possible worlds, that that was the best thing that could happen. And so he um, chose that and in choosing it, ordained it. So... What, yeah. what you're going to find in this Arminian Calvinist debate, okay, what you're going to find is two sides of the spectrum. One emphasizes the sovereignty of God, and one is trying to preserve free will, meaningful human choice. That's, that's, the, that's the crux of the issue. How do you preserve the sovereignty of God and meaningful choice? And so on this extreme, you have Calvinism. On this extreme, you have Arminianism. And you can get crazy ideas on the further and further away mm -hmm. you go from the mm -hmm. center. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, I, I want to take one minute to have a little exercise. So turn to John 1 real quick. That's in your Bible. Yeah, in your Bible. <laughs> that's Gruden. I know Nate one called the, one, one Gruden the, the Bible earlier, but that's not correct. <laughs> one of the Gospels. <laughs> I mean, what I, what I, uh, but what I meant was... Uh, All right, John 1. <laughs> somebody bold and brave. Read uh, verses 11, starting verse 11. So this is, there's, because of the nature of my position on the equipping team, and people come, they join Watermark, you'll have people on both sides of this, right? And I'll get the angry Calvinist, what does Watermark believe? And how come, this is the angry Calvinist, okay? How come God, Todd doesn't preach uh, that it's God's sovereign will Right, so we'll get that. Why are and you then so I'll get angry? the and they're angry. They're always angry. And then and, and then I'll get the Armenian who will come. How come there's not an altar call every Sunday? How come we don't do that? How come we don't how come we don't preach the gospel every Sunday? Okay, so I'll have both. Okay. So I'm not gonna join this church until we A or B. Okay. So I take them to John one and I have them read this passage. Because I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to ask me to, and I, and I like the way Nathan said that, they're trying to ask me to alleviate a tension that I don't think Scripture gives me liberty to do. Mm-mm. Okay? So, God is sovereign, and yet you are culpable for the choices you make. Okay? Which is it? Yes. The answer is yes. Okay? And look at John 1 in the same passage. Yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay? Right, right beside that, human choice. You are culpable as to how you will respond to Jesus. But what does the very next verse say? Who were born not of the will of man, Okay, but what? But of God. Write down divine sovereignty. Okay? So you cannot untangle that in my mind in a way that allows you to do justice to the text. So people are like, hey, you know, that's just theology. Y'all are full of contradictions. You can't make up your mind. Okay, for you, all you scientists out there, you tell me, what is light? What? How many people think it's a wave? How many people think it's a particle? Okay, people, come on. I don't know if you're asleep or what. Here's the deal. If you, took, you took science class, and they taught you that light was a particle and a wave. Isn't that right? Okay, did anybody sit there and go, hey, prof, how in the world could that be? No, they just accepted it. Because guess why? Because it's a particle and it's a wave. And so in the same way in the physical, natural world, we can't alleviate that tension. The same thing is true here. I just don't think we're meant to untie that.
And whenever you get to one extreme over the other, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt, like mm -hmm. hard determinism or some sort of denial of God's sovereignty. Okay? It's known as an antinomy, two irrefutable truths that are irreconcilable. Okay? So if you want to read a good book on this whole idea that's pretty thin, actually, um, but... Uh, you wrestle with this, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And he talks about this very thing in relation to uh, evangelism and man's responsibility. So, cool. Okay. Yep, one more and, and then, okay. yep, one more. Um, all right, so just because you're so motivated. Let's go. What are we saying? <laughs> One, two, two three. three. <laughs> so I can tell you where the fairway is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, like you said, Where's your ball? Then? We don't have an answer. We can't answer till here, like predestination. God truly speaks of that, but then. Okay, now you ask. Okay. So there's. So the So Ephesians one, God predestines, God elects, and we believe it and we teach it. Okay, so how we explain that takes work. I believe, so this is the best way for me to say this, and it's not, my, not original to me. I preach like an Arminian, okay? Meaning, come, come, come. But I pray like a Calvinist because I know that no matter how persuasive I am with my words, if God doesn't change your heart, you're not coming. Okay. Because, like when we say, oh, let's go preach the gospel. Well, in, when I read, I could never say to the Lord, I chose you first. He chose me first. He did choose you first. And then it, that's exactly right. Would be, yes, Father. So, so it's, it's the, if you've ever seen the illustration, it's the door on the outside says, all come, you know, all welcome, right? And then you walk through the door and you look back and it says, you were chosen. Okay. And so we are going to get there when we, hit the doctrine of salvation. And we'll talk yep. about all of this. Yep. But yes, we believe in election as a church. We do. It's right there in Ephesians 1. Before the foundations of the world, all of those who have come to know the Lord have been chosen. But that does not mean that those of us who reject him aren't culpable for the decision we made in refusing him. So I know, of course, yeah, <laughs> there's tons of questions. Seriously, if you want to hang around afterwards and, and chat about this, I'm, I'm willing to, to uh, hang out. But let me, uh, but it is nine o'clock. I want to respect y'all's time. I'm going to close this by um, a prayer by A.W. Tozer since we've talked about, you know, Tozer a couple times. Um, I'm just going to read this prayer over us, um, but to the Lord. So Lord... They that know you not may call upon you other uh, than you are, and so worship not you but a creation of a, a creature of their own fancy. Therefore, enlighten our minds that we may know you as you are, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily praise you. Were we to hold our peace, the stones would cry out. Yet if we speak, what, what should we say? Teach us to know that we cannot know, for the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. 
Let faith support us where reason fails. And we will think because we believe, not in order that we may believe. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. All questions that I just referred to, it is in Spalding at watermart.org. <laughs> she got the night off. All right? That's Send funny. them her way. She'll answer them for you. Find me with you. Hey, remember, um, is, it, is it the end of this month? We're, we meet again at the end of this month. Yep. You'll get an email about it. Y'all have a great night. <laughs>